0: Choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You
1: got speed, John Glenn.
2: Roger Zero G and I feel fine. Might be out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder?
1: At last, huh?
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 271 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13 free return.
3: And, uh, uh, excuse that, me, Wally. You? Roy Neal has been in mission control. Let's listen in. Good. The control in Houston are gathered around
4: the console. They are talking at the moment through the capsule communicator Jack Lausma with astronauts James Lovell and Fred Hayes in Aquarius, the lunar module, which is in control of the situation, moving toward the moon. Jack Swigert is in the command module. That module, Odyssey, currently powered down, having suffered trouble in two out of the three fuel cells, trouble sufficient to abort the mission of Apollo 13 to the moon and force a return to Earth. A return, however, that will not begin until the lunar module engines are fired up to accelerate the spacecraft, speed it up so that it will go around the moon, and then return to Earth. Uh, That burn is expected in about uh, 20 hours and a half, about 20 and a half hours from now, and this means that the astronauts will be returning to Earth a good deal earlier than expected at 142 hours into the mission, 142 hours after they took off. Right now, Aboard the spacecraft, the men are setting power levels. Here at Mission Control, the various support sections are figuring out at what power levels they can operate. The computers are being checked and aligned. The astronauts are looking out the window, checking stars. And that's the situation right now. To repeat, Apollo 13 will not land on the moon. Instead, engines will be burned aboard the lunar module some 20 and a half hours from now to send it on its way back to Earth. Roy Neal in Mission Control.
0: Since March of 1969, when Apollo 9 flew with Jim McDivitt, Dave Scott, and Rusty Swigert and took the first manned lunar module into Earth orbit, separated it from the command service module, and piloted it away into its own distant Earth orbit, the spacecraft had been the favorite of a moon-happy public. The lander performed so well in that first flight that NASA even decided to try a few experimental maneuvers in which the docked spacecraft would be pushed around by the lunar module's descent engine. After all, you never knew when North American's trusty command module would need an emergency push from Grumman's lunar lander. From Apollo 9 on, no manned American spacecraft had gone to space without a lunar module alone. In the previous five flights, Grumman kept three separate crews working around the clock to monitor any flying lunar module. One crew stationed in a room just off mission control, one in a support building nearby on the Manned Space Center campus, and one back at Bethpage, Long Island. Grumman also kept an engineering manager available to visit any of the three sites that on any given day. Now back to the crisis. After the press conference, Chris Kraft returned to mission control. He noticed that the atmosphere in the room had changed dramatically. Things had quieted down considerably at the ECOM station, where the crisis was a command module death watch. It had now become a post-mortem. The screen that had been blinking with bulletins from the dying Odyssey had now essentially gone flatline, with zeros and blank spots appearing where oxygen and power readings had once been. Clint Burton and a handful of other technicians hovered over the consoles, murmuring to one another and occasionally glancing back at the screen as if there were still some chance that the expired spacecraft would stir to life. For practical purposes, however, the activity at that console had stopped. Elsewhere around the room, the mood was a good deal less subdued. Though Glenn Lunny's black team had replaced Gene Kranz's white team, the white team had not yet left the control room. At most of the consoles, the recently relieved controllers stood or crouched behind their replacements. Their eyes focused on the screens and their headsets plugged into auxiliary jacks reserved for visitors. At Capcom console, astronaut Jack Lausma, who, like all Capcoms, worked a three-man rotation instead of a four-man one in order to minimize the number of different voices on the air-to-ground loop, was for the most part being left alone to conduct his communications with the crew in peace. But at the other consoles, clusters of people stood at workstations that had been designed for one. The busiest station was still at the flight director's console, where Glenn Lunny was juggling traffic on the flight director's loop, with Krantz pacing back and forth behind him, occasionally summoning various white team controllers over for consultations. As Kraft approached the two flight directors and glanced at the console they were sharing, he could tell that they had their hands full. Above Lunny's monitor was a series of green, amber, and red lights, each connected to one of the consoles around the room. During a launch, the controllers would use these lights to inform the flight director of the status of their systems in the brief but explosive minutes between the time the spacecraft left the pad and the time it settled into Earth orbit. A green light indicated that a controller's systems were operating normally. Amber meant there was a problem and the controller needed to talk to a flight director at once. Red meant that there were grounds for an abort. Of course, after the launch phase was through, these lights became superfluous, but over time, Flight directors had begun using them to help field calls that came in from around the room. A controller signing onto the loop with a question or a request during a flight would often as not be told to go to Amber. So the flight director could contemplate the problem without forgetting to call back with an answer. On Monty's console, half of the more than two dozen lights were now Amber and as the flight director himself signed on, he was about to bring the rest of the controllers online.
2: Okay, uh, I'd like to get everybody up here a minute. Uh, Retro Guidance, Control, Telmu, GNC and Ecom and Capcom, Inco and FAO. Is everybody on the loop? Give me an amber, please.
0: The green lights on Lunny's control console flashed off immediately, and the amber ones flashed on With the exception of the retro officer who was involved in a discussion with his back room.
2: Retro, you up? Guidance, get a retro up in the loop, please. Uh, Look, uh, as I see it, we got a number of things to do. No big hurry right now. Uh, We got to maintain calm here, of course, with the limb but we need to see what we need to do about setting up a PTC attitude and in a, range and a control mode and what that means relative to the ags and the ping's configuration uh, as to powering the ags down, etc. Now, Control, you're working that problem, right? Roger. Uh, uh, and I'm proceeding now, just staying put until we get that whole story put together, and how long is it going to take you, do you think, to come to some conclusion on that, Al? I uh, don't have an estimate right now, but we're trying to get it to you. About an hour? There. Yeah. All right, now, so so we'll just stand by on that. We are interested, though, in this also from the point of view of the power configuration. Uh, uh, tell me, I assume that you're working out all the consumable options, and as soon as control's got a mode here, you're going to be able to lay out a power profile to tell us where we stand on all your O2 and your water, water. and your power, right? Royalco can you say something generally now generally we can come all the way home at 25 amps right on the limb no uh, not with this uh, water usage right now fine no but if we go down to 25 amps oh, that'll help us won't it? oh I see what you're saying 25 amps not no much. that's not going to help us that much fine ok well uh, what do we have to get down to for example stand by I think it's on about the point. 15 amps or so from the point of view of the water, then we're going to get down that yeah, low. Yeah, about 15, I think. Can we do that in a life support com mode? Say again, Flight? We, we could be at 15 amps in the life support com mode, could we not? That's affirmative. All right. Now, well, you need to figure out something also for your CO2 scrubbing, right? Right. And and Econ needs to know how he's going to do that over in his vehicle if we have to get into that. i got a note up here that I don't quite understand. It says... L-M-L-I-O-H is 48 man-hours, and that doesn't sound quite right to me. That's on the the cartridge. Stand by, we'll get you consumable lifetime right. on it. But uh, tell me, I'd like some people to start running consumable profiles out, making a couple of different assumptions and not standing by waiting for everything. And, I, and please have somebody run it out grossly, you know, so that we continue to have at least a story, even though it's not the most accurate one, you can continue to refine it as you go along. Right. But I'd like to, uh, relatively soon here, get some idea how we stand and what we're, boxes we're running into and when we got to start deciding things, okay? Welcome. Okay, does anybody have anything else uh, besides those areas that they want to bring to our attention right now? Uh, in flight, Inco? Yes, Inco. If we can
1: get that changed over, we can get some tracking data for FIDO, we hope. If you'll let us drop the uplink and the downlink from the limb for about 25 seconds.
2: And uh, uh, and then reestablish it? Right. Okay.
1: We'd like you to alert the crew that they're not going to have contact for a few seconds. Okay.
2: Let me go around, Ed, and then we'll pick that up. Does anybody okay. uh, have anything else? Let me go around the room. Trench, uh, retro, Negative. FIDO, guidance. Negative flight guidance you okay we'll go back green in please control you got anything else negative five okay uh tell me negative five okay i want to start hearing from you tell me on these consumables again okay. fine i want to start hearing from you as you roger pitch. we're cranking okay we'll go back green in, GNC. and c negative ecom negative green please capcom and jack can you think anything we ought to be working on other than those mentioned i didn't get all you mentioned but are we uh, working on bringing the eggs up yeah, that's uh, a possibility, you know, well, we as to whether we ought to do that for the PTC and, and do what time suggested here. Well, we could bring it up and have it there, and uh, it'd be a good idea to make I don't, sure it's working. Yeah, I just don't want to use any more power right now or any more water. Okay. Uh, As soon as we know a little more about what we really ought to do, then we'll proceed to spend the consumables to do that. Anything else that you can think of? i'd like to have a little uh, more information upon the
3: uh, crew's trajectory with the relation to the moon that we could pass
2: up yes and uh warm. inco uh is gonna at the end of this go around the room we're gonna ask the crew to stand by for about 25 seconds of uh, of uh calm loss while we do some reconfiguring in an attempt to get tracking on the limb okay but uh we think they're still close fido flight what go flight what closest approach uh, are you estimating on the limb uh, still looking at about 60 miles flight. We're still looking at 60, Jack. 60 miles. Yeah. And, uh... And this comm thing we're going through is to try to reestablish tracking on the limb. Right now we don't have tracking. Okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, you can go back green in if you will. Okay, Sergeant, you have anything? Yeah, two things. We're figuring, uh, looking at this CO2 problem, uh, with you. At, uh, one point in time we'd arrive at various levels of CO2... In the limb configuration the other thing is glenn we uh, at some point in time we'd like to get that bomb switch on in the limb it it's in the off position okay okay you want to go back green in anything besides uh, that uh com go anything else go back green in afd uh negative fly fao you have anything you're working on at stowage right That's- uh, Any flight. suggestions we might have as to what they might move to the land or move to the CSM? That's right. Uh,
3: we're working on that. I think it'll be minimal anyway.
2: Okay. And uh, Network, you got anything? Uh, we hope to have uh, Honeysuckle 210 up by 62 uh, hours for voice only. Okay. We hope to have them up by then. Okay. Uh, recovery? You got anything? Uh, negative flight, present efforts are to identify ships on the Atlantic and Indian Ocean. Okay. So network, you want to go back green then? Okay, they're the subjects, and we need to start getting some closed out on some of them here, gentlemen. So, let us bend our
0: efforts to get that done. The ags Lunny was referring to was the abort guidance system, and the PTC was the passive thermal control. Of all the problems Lunny faced, the most complex was the burn, In the hour or so since the astronauts had moved over to Aquarius, no definite decisions had yet been made about how to propel the docked ships toward home. And with the spacecraft moving closer to the moon at an increasing speed, the options were quickly fading. The first maneuver considered after the direct abort was ruled out was a Parasynthian plus two burn. Paracenthian is the point at which a spacecraft launched from Earth into lunar orbit is nearest the Moon. The plus two means plus two hours. The burn is commonly referred to as PC plus two. If the burn was going to be attempted, it would take a lot of planning, and the time for the paracenthian was closing in fast. It would always be possible to fire the engine after the PC plus 2 point, but the earlier in the earthward transit a burn was attempted, the less fuel it would take to affect the trajectory. The longer the burn was delayed, the longer the engine would have to be fired. Chris Kraft, Gene Kranz, and Glenn Lunny believed the only way home was to use the lunar module's engine, and more importantly, to use it as soon as possible. On their current course, it would be tomorrow evening before the docked ships first passed behind the shadow of the moon, and it would be close to three hours beyond that before they reached the PC plus two milestone. Waiting the better part of a day to get the crew on its homeward trajectory seemed nonchalant at best and downright reckless at worst. What Kraft wanted to do was fire the descent engine now to get the ship back on its free-return slingshot course and when it emerged from behind the moon and reached the PC plus two point, execute any maneuvers that might be required to refine the trajectory or increase its speed. Kraft and Krantz discussed the plan with Chuck Dietrich, an off-duty retrofire officer, and Jerry Bostic, an off-duty flight dynamics officer. Dietrich, Bostic, and the other flight dynamics specialist would have to come up with the plan to initiate the burn. In space, in the crowded cockpit of Aquarius, the men on whose behalf Bostic and Dietrich would be working had more elemental things on their mind than a return-to-Earth engine burn. Settling into his two-man spacecraft with his three-man crew, Jim Lovell was standing at his station on the left side of the cabin, wedged between the port bulkhead on one side and a projecting shelf that held his attitude controller on the other. Hayes was off to the right squeezed uneasily between the starboard wall and his own backup attitude control. Swigert was between and behind the two pilots, perched awkwardly atop the bulge in the floor that covered the ascent stage engine. When Lovell shifted too far to the right, he would jostle Swigert, who in turn jostled Hayes. When Hayes shifted too far to the left, the wave rippled back in the other direction. With three warm bodies in a spacecraft built for two, and with the electrical and environmental systems slowly stirring to life, the temperature inside the previously cold Aquarius had begun to rise, but only to a point. The power down of Odyssey had caused the command module's thermometer to plummet almost immediately, and when Lovell had last checked the environmental readings before coming over to the Aquarius, the cockpit was at 58 degrees Fahrenheit and falling. Now, with all the equipment in the command module shut down, its interior was growing even colder. And with the bulky hatch between the ships still not in place, leaving the tunnel wide open, the temperature in the lunar module was starting to fall too. Already the gathering chill and the collective respiration of three men were causing condensation to form on the walls and the windows. It's not going to be easy flying this thing if we can't see through the glass, Lovell said to no one in particular as he glanced at the fogged triangular porthole in front of him. We'll get them wiped off, Hayes said, and we'll have to keep them wiped off. The colder it gets, the more they'll cloud up. Can you see anything there anyway? Hayes asked. Lovell wiped a bit of condensation off his window and peered through the small, cleared patch. The view from Aquarius was much the same as it had been from Odyssey, a swirling cloud of oxygen ice crystals and particles of debris from the explosion. Lovell surveyed the mess for a moment. Just the same cloud of junk we had next door, he said. Well, we're not going to be able to wipe that away, are we, Hayes said. You know, Lovell said, turning to Swigert, It's getting cold in here. It's going to be freezing in Odyssey. We may want to bring some food and water over before it's too late. Do you want me to get it? Swigert asked. Lovell replied, it would be a big help. Fill up as many drink bags as you can with water from the potable tank and grab some food packets along with them. I'm on my way, Swaggert said. Standing on the engine cover, the command module pilot bent into a partial crouch and straightened up again quickly, springing into the tunnel that led back to his ship, entering the lower equipment bay at the foot of the couches. He stopped at the food locker, lifted the lid, and peered inside. The rations for a ten-day moon trip were generous. There were packets of turkey and gravy, spaghetti and meat sauce, chicken soup, chicken salad, pea soup, tuna salad, scrambled eggs, cornflakes, sandwich spread, chocolate bars, peaches, pears, apricots, bacon squares, sausage patties, Tang cinnamon toast, brownies, and more. Each packet was secured with a strip of Bale color-coded to indicate each crewman's rations. Swigert scooped up a few handfuls of packets and left them to float in the air nearby. Turning to the potable water tank, he grabbed a few drink bags and began filling them from a plastic water gun attached to a length of flexible tubing. On the first bag, however, the gun misfired and a ball of water floated downward and splashed around Swigert's soft cloth shoes. He got his feet wet. More important to Lovell than the housekeeping chores inside his spacecraft were the conditions outside. Though he had not expected the gas and rubble released by the accident to have dissipated by now, his peek through the wet window was still disheartening. The halo of debris surrounding the ship was not a safety problem, since the spacecraft and the surrounding debris were all moving at roughly the same velocity. It was unlikely that any of the particles would collide with the ship, and if they did, the difference in the relative speed of the trash and the vehicle would be small enough to cause little more than a ding. Rather, it was the problem of navigation that gave Lovell the most concern.
3: The problem at the moment is one of attitude and guidance in the spacecraft. Uh, the, with the power down, I gather Wally Sherroth, who was with me, uh, they are not able to uh, determine their exact attitude uh, through their instruments, and uh, therefore they have said they are navigating by simply... Uh, Uh, viewing out of the window uh, the Terminator, the Sun line on the Moon.
1: That's one of the things I did read, Walter. Now, you must realize we're all trained to look at the star pattern, the celestial sphere, as we call it, to determine which star is a navigation star. We have 37 stars that are part of our computer program. They can be picked up out of the window, and that's part of what you heard in this last transmission. So uh, a crude attitude can be obtained initially with the stars, Then we have a a device in the vehicle, be it the LAM or the command module, in this case, of course, they're using the LAM, to look at a known star. And that data can be transferred from a little optical sight, kind of fun, I developed that back in Mercury days, uh, to determine their attitude celestially, which is the inertial attitude we talk about. Now, if the LEM computer works properly, they can attach... Uh, the same star by moving the limb, the whole combination, the limb service module, command module, with the limb propulsion system attitude control to get a fix. Now, the reason that
3: they need that attitude so precisely is to fire the engines. Yes. Uh, they have to be fired with them in the right attitude, or of course the thrust yes. is in the wrong direction. Sure. They go off in the wrong
1: now, direction. Now, this is all within the capability of the computer program. Uh, it's really, and, and I guess they simply said, you can talk to the limb computer uh, through uh, any variable, much as the this optical alignment set, we call it the COAS, which is just a collimating device. But now
3: they're again uh, using that computer is draining some of that precious power that they the, the battery.
0: The alignment that Lovell had programmed into the lunar module's computer was, he hoped, good enough to give the guidance system a rough idea of the true attitude of the lunar module. But in order to orient the spacecraft precisely enough for any engine burns, he would have to perform a far more exacting fine alignment. This procedure required the commander to recognize particular stars in particular constellations outside his window and adjust his guidance platform by taking sightings on those stars with his Alignment Optical Telescope, or AOT. With only 60 miles clearance as Odyssey and Aquarius arced around the moon, even a tiny Miscalculation in orientation during the free return burn would cause the twin ships to auger into the far side, plowing a long, permanent trench in the lunar surface. Salutations from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 271 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, Free Return. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Episodes 1 through 91 are now available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. I'll try to get some more up next month with the goal of catching up with the main podcast RSS feed. But if you just can't wait until that occurs, all of the episodes are available on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the shuttle-level donors. There are nine so far this year. Shuttle donors contribute $70 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, shuttle donors. Okay, I had a couple afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to credit my sources. Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kranz. Flight by Chris Kraft the Apollo 13 Flight Journal, the Johnson Space Center, Glenn Lunney's Apollo 13 Mission Report, Mr. John Lewis, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. I received an excellent email from Mr. Lewis, who is a system manager at the Johnson Space Center, relating to our topic. Here is a summarized excerpt from the email. In space... The power you use and the energy the crew exerts makes heat, and that heat has to be rejected somehow to keep everything from overheating. The Apollo command and service module generated so much water from the fuel cells, more than the crew needed for drinking, that there was a good amount to provide vehicle cooling. However, the lunar module environmental control system was built more like the portable life support system backpack, the astronauts used to walk on the moon. Just a bigger version of it. This was probably due in large part because Hamilton Standard in Windsor Locks, Connecticut built both the environmental control unit for the portable life support system and the lunar module. The limb was built only to field the 2 crewed duration away from the command and service module. With battery power, no fuel cells, so it did not have a source of generated water. As a result, all the water it needed for the mission had to be provided in tanks. The lunar module also did not have any radiant cooling like the service module did. Like the portable life support system, it was cooled with a water sublimator only. A sublimator is similar to a water evaporator in that it cools by the phase change of water but different than a water evaporator in that the sublimator sublimates ice to water vapor for cooling. The sublimator is exposed to space vacuum well below the triple point of water. In this pressure region, ice sublimates directly to water vapor. In the lunar module's case, this phase change, cooling rejected all of the heat that the lunar module generated to space. In talking to Frank Rotter, who worked on the Apollo 13 flight, the water available in the lunar module was the biggest issue for the environmental control system and more than just having enough water for the crew to drink was having enough water to reject the heat generated in the operation of the lunar module. That was a great concern. The carbon dioxide issue gets most of the coverage, but reducing the power to save the batteries And reduce the water use was the persistent problem for the environmental control system. And that is the end of the excerpt. I hope I got all that right, Mr. Lewis. I gave it my best shot. (laughs) It was pretty technical. But uh, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you helping me out so much on this Apollo 13 series. And hopefully, I'll see you in February. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past couple of weeks. Ben K. donated at the Orion level. Stuart C. from Hawaii donated at the Orion level. Igor P. donated at the Mir ISS level and earned his moon emoji. Steve C., sent in another donation this year and moved to the Mir ISS level. The School Times International sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level. Tobias S. from Austria donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Timo S. from Germany sent in another donation this year and moved to the Mercury level. Jean-Francois P. donated at the Mercury level. Joseph C. donated at the Vostok level. Ben K. from Dublin, Ireland donated at the Vostok level. Christoph Z. donated at the Vostok level. And Paul A. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our Patreon donors are now at 192, with a goal of reaching 218 before the end of the year. And our total donors for 2018 have reached 348, with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All supporters are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate. Now, for those of you who have already donated in 2018, we certainly appreciate that. And this week we're giving away the new official SRH logo magnet. It is 3 inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Bruce Minturn. Bruce Minturn, if you would email me and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 272 out by next Thursday. So long for now.